This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. You're probably listening to this on a mobile phone. You probably do almost everything on a mobile device right now. And like me, you might feel a nagging anxiety that for all that we've gained in terms of convenience and ubiquity, we've also lost things that we can't quite put our fingers on, that somehow we find it harder to concentrate with these devices in our hand. Our guest today has been thinking long and hard about what digital media is doing to our powers of attention, and specifically to reading, since the very early days of digital media itself. In 1994, long before the advent of the mass internet, literary critic Sven Burkett published the acclaimed book The Gutenberg Elegies, a prescient look at what could happen to the experience of reading in a world besieged by digital information. And his 2015 book, Changing the Subject, Art and Attention in the Internet Age, took the story forward, arguing that going digital didn't just change the words and the pictures, it was changing us, how we think, even who we are. I interviewed Sven in 2018 for a print magazine, and I've been thinking about what he said ever since. It made me think about how I think. So it's a real pleasure to welcome him into the bunker. Sven, how are you doing? I'm doing well, and thanks for having me on. So Sven, where are you in uh, subjective human physical space as opposed to endless multi-connected digital space? Yes, I am in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. Very nice. So you wrote the Gutenberg Elegies in the early 90s when e-books and mass internet were kind of just the stuff of Wired magazine, really. Going back to then, what indicated to you that something was happening in the kind of dialogue between you know conventional books and, and the way they were going to be consumed in future? I think there was a kind of gradual process for me of a growing awareness, which didn't at first start with books and reading. Well, first, it was a recognition of the ubiquity of the the blue screen, the television. And I had a sort of epiphany moment when I was out walking one night back in my old home state. And I went to the top of a hill and was just having a look around. And I noticed that everywhere around me were those blinking, flashing blue lights. So I said, okay, something is going on here. It's not as simple as people watching TV shows. There is some kind of transformation already underway. And this is right ahead of the advent of the computer and, you know, the more the introduction of the computer into civilian life, as it were. And then I started paying attention to that. I guess I'm, I'm not paranoid, but I'm vigilant about transformations, I suppose. And this one, it merged. First, it was just, you know, the computer, then it became word processing and writing. Then it became how writing mostly happened. And then it became, as it is now, how much, if not most, reading happens. You know, it happens across a flat plane, which at every moment you are aware that it's not a static analog entity, but you're aware that it's part of a whole digital system with tremendous power and complexity. And so I argued early on, I think, that reading the same, let's say, page in a book and on the screen is not the same thing. There's a different neural awareness that begins to happen, in part because a book is static and 
you control the book and the medium of the screen is just so implicitly fluid and borderless and has its own sort of motion within it, the scrolling motion. So I just, you know, I began to be fascinated by that and the impact on reading. In the Gutenberg Elegies, you wrote that I value the state a book puts me in more than I value the specific contents. When you have sort of different ways of reading, e-books, audio books, and so on, it does put you in a different state, does it? You're behaving like a different person. I feel that, yeah. I think sitting with, uh, you know, old-style book, a thing with covers and pages, you almost necessarily, in the process of reading, are entering a different realm. You're slowing down. You're moving into a kind of duration state where time is felt differently. When you're reading on a screen, no matter what you're reading, I think the background knowledge of the digital pulse, which is always there, does not allow you to abolish time or, you know, sink in in the same way. You can be drawing the same impressions and characters, but the very process itself, the nature of the device, a device has implications. And uh, I think the implications of electronic circuited devices just absolutely preclude reaching a certain meditative calm state. And I'd be interested if someone somewhere, you know, convincingly posed the opposite to me. My experience of trying to read on an iPad in particular is it's completely impossible because not only are you perpetually nagged by notifications, you're also nagged by yourself. There's a voice at the back of your head saying, that's great, you've read a paragraph. Maybe you should have a quick look at Twitter and see if the Prime Minister has been got rid of yet. Do you know what I mean? It's like, well, whereas a book does one thing and the sensation of reading any book is always different, typeface, cover, the weight in your hand. The sensation of reading on a device is always the same. You're looking through a window at a universe where a whole load of other stuff is happening on the periphery that's desperate to get your attention. Absolutely. And I think now we should also factor into the conversation, maybe the changed nature of the world at large, if I can generalize. The old idea for eons, and one, I was not the only one, but is that you know a book was a kind of escape. It was a getting away from the dailiness into something other, which then, you know, touch different parts of your inward life or whatever. I still think reading a book is escape, but what's being escaped is mm -hmm. so different than what used to be escaped, at least in my time of growing up. The world, not only because of, you know, check my Twitter and all that, but it's always there. If you have any sort of machine around you, you're aware of, you know, well, there's Boris Johnson and there's Roe v. Wade and there's just it doesn't stop. So it almost, you need an almost stronger, to coin a concept here, an escape velocity. It's harder. Mm. It's harder to get in because there's so much that you need to get away from. Yeah, yeah, your average book is an escape from the world, be it fiction or nonfiction, whereas your electronic device is an escape into the world. It is the thing that sort of, it's almost the new public square, isn't it? Yeah, very much, very much. When we last spoke about four or five years ago, I said, uh, oh, well, you know, what about Harry Potter and Game of Thrones and the resurgence of interest in Lord of the Rings and all of these things? Books are, in many respects, bigger than ever. And I think your reply was something along the lines of, this doesn't really lead people to read more books. It just leads them to read more Harry Potter. You know, they don't, they don't branch out so much. Is that necessarily a bad thing, though? Well, I don't know bad. It's kind of a defining thing. I mean, there's nothing bad about 
plunging into the world of Harry Potter and enjoying the experience, the adventure of it all. So that's not bad. I, I, I but I still agree with my my old notion that it doesn't make you want to go pick up Robinson Crusoe. I don't think. I think it keeps you in the culture world of that particular obsession. You know, the Harry oh. Potter fandom obsession or whatever. I don't see it as a migration then on and on in a week you'll be reading Aristotle. But maybe I'm too cynical about this. But I do know that when the Potter craze was at its height, you know, the sort of the received wisdom was that, well, this is great. This is gonna bring kids back to books. I don't think it did. I think it's brought kids back to gaming, you know, various other options that simulate certain kinds of fantasy adventure worlds but i'm sure i'm sure again there are leagues of people who uh young people who you know read science fiction or crazy to read historical novels or whatever i mean nothing is ever you know that black and white it's more tendencies along a kind of spectrum audio book sales are booming at the moment. So they're up $100 billion in the US from 2019 to, to 2020. Audiobooks are almost the book you can read in quotes while doing something else. I mean, does it, do audiobooks count as reading, do you think? Um, I think they count as 40% reading. I mean, I'm speaking mm-hmm. that as somebody who listens to audiobooks, but I listen to uh, podcasts when I drive, and they're usually literary podcasts, and sometimes they're podcasts of a work text being read and sometimes they're just sort of authors speaking but i noticed really the minute i turn the uh, engine off there's a kind of vaporizing effect i'm aware of the feeling of what i just listened to there's not enough pressure to make things stick i don't think you can process a literary sentence at the speed of the voice I mean, I think reading is deceleration. And I think what causes the deceleration is, you know, the art of the writing. I mean, the writer puts these sentences together in certain rhythmic formations and certain, you know, diction pad, all of that, which you can recognize and take in and register, but not at the speed of the speaking voice. That gives you a different impression. You can get the plot, the sense of the character and Dialogue, dialogue comes across very well in the uh, audio world. And yeah, and it's fun. I mean, there's nothing at all about it that is pejorative or, you know, negative. Only when you hold it up against the other kind of reading, you have to say that it's different. Yeah, my my feeling is that I'm, I'm forever sort of walking around when I listen to a, an audiobook, my recurrent sort of mental sentences, wait, what? Hang on, say that again? Yeah, what? yeah. Because you've been chivied along at the pace of the narrator rather than, as you say, the pace that you dictate yourself. Oh, exactly. There's, I mean, everyone seems to really love, for example, um, Jeremy Irons reading Lolita in his wonderful Jeremy Irons voice and articulation. And that's, it is a pleasure. It's a pleasure to hear it. But when I'm reading, I'm doing something else. I'm pausing two sentences into a paragraph and looking back for a moment and I'm picking up stitches I may have dropped, especially if it's a fairly complex prose, that it demands from you, not in terms of that it's hard, but that, you know, the words have been put there to evoke across, um, not just to the ear, but to the ear and the eye and the thinking brain. And you can't quite get that. I mean, I'm I'm totally with you. I keep wanting to say, wait, wait, wait. And uh, you can't really do that. 
One of the main themes of changing the subject, your book from 2015, is is that living a primarily digital life, not just books, but you know other methods of communication, doesn't change doesn't just change what we consume. It changes how we think, and it almost changes who we are. We're not kind of just solely in. Uh, the real physical world. We're in this invisible, borderless digital world. There's a great quote that pops up in the middle of the book from the Swiss writer Max Frisch, who describes technology as arranging the world so that we don't have to experience it. And that kind of made me think of, you know, people using Uber instead of having a cab, using Expedia instead of talking to a travel agent. Every app that you use is designed to stop you having to talk to another human being. Exactly. And this we find very attractive. And it also, um, it's not only the not talk to another human being, everything is a sort of seen as a simplification. So I know I used the example somewhere of all the years of, you know, you go to the bank, you wait in line, go to the counter, you write your check. Now, if someone's in front of you at the ATM and they're fussing just a little bit too long, this is already an insult, you know, to one's being. All of our rates of whatever activity and reception or whatever, have been so speeded up, you know, if Uber doesn't come in three minutes, there's something wrong in the world. If the delivery, if the pizza guy's not here in five minutes. So it's not just the people thing, it's the expectation of gratification, not as a gift, but as an assumption, you know. You assume you're going to be gratified if you're playing the game right, you know. Everything gets delivered, you know, the Amazon truck goes away, the pizza comes, you check your bank on the phone, you know, shift some funds around. It's such a pull away from hands-on living. Sometimes, you know, you just have to try to pick out trends. Speaking of trends, in changing the subject, you write about the physical experience of playing vinyl records, the fluff on the needle, the scrape of your finger, the kind of that weird microsecond thing before the needle actually enters the groove. And since you wrote the book, the interest in vinyl has resurged enormously amongst younger people as well. Does it give you kind of hope that people want to experience art in the real with all of its kind of rough edges as opposed to just purely in a disembodied digital sense coming to you through your phone? Very much, very much. Vinyl, not only for maybe the physical tactile sensations that are around it, but also, um, and this I realize as like so many people, if I'm driving and I just put something on Spotify, I have no control. It's going to jump. If I want a specific thing, I have to pause and go look for it. One of the things about listening to vinyl for all those years was the rituals around vinyl, you knew what else was on the record after the first cut. If you really wanted to change it, you went over and you lifted the needle and tried to find the sort of spacer there. It was so much more self-involving or involving the self, let's say. Everything's too easy. I think that is it. And we pull toward ease. I pull toward ease too, you know, very much. But I'm aware that that's, What's happening, you know, things that were formerly normal are now pain in the ass, you know. Well, it's with a record, much as with a novel, you're being guided through a particular journey by somebody who's thought about this and arranged these things in a particular way. And the only interaction you needed with a vinyl record was to get up every 20 minutes and turn the thing over. (laughs) And that's about as much interaction as I want. I don't want to have to sit in front of Spotify, which has been described as like listening to a spreadsheet and have to make a bunch of decisions. I want I want a, a person cleverer than me to have made my decisions for me and guide me through a piece of art. 
That's exactly it. So it's a kind of not just contact with the stuff of the art, the music, but it's a sense of some connection, however ethereal, between what you're listening to and there is human decision at the other end. The decisions are made by people and they're made for reasons. They are not following some formulaic sort of, if you like this, then you're sure to like that. Give you this, and the more you show us what you like, the more we're going to give you what you like. You'd think, wow, that's great. But you're not looking anymore. You're not going to the store, the bookstore, say, or the record store. That is being filtered away. Yeah, and uh, it's very easy to get stuff delivered straight to your phone just by an algorithm. But if you haven't invested time and thought in it, or even you haven't invested chance in it, it kind of doesn't feel as valuable. Right, right. Have you noticed that, that there are any forms of electronic media that do foster the kind of concentration that you talked about with books that, you know, maybe not exactly the same, but are as valuable, a different form of involvement? Because whenever I travel on public transport, people are rapidly over their phones. Right. They're concentrating on something. They are. Um, and occasionally it's probably a book, but I usually see them moving their digits pretty quickly and scrolling or filling in a field, playing a game. I hold out my hope in people as more than the technologies that are forming so much of how we all experience our world. Well, I have noticed one thing. You see a hell of a lot fewer people reading newspapers, but you see pretty much as many people reading books on public transport. So something in the in, in the time between the Gutenberg allergies and now, somehow they have survived they have. and kept a niche. I agree. And apparently there was quite a book boom during the pandemic. So there is a future for it. There is, indeed. Sven Berkitz, thanks so much for talking to me. It was really nice talking about this. And it's, it's always good to check in on the world, not just the news of the world, but, you know, the look of the culture, I guess. Yeah, and the things in it. The things in it. Changing the subject, art and attention in the internet age, and the Gutenberg elegies are available from your nearest vendor of physical books. Uh, listeners, if you want to fuel the concentration machine of digital media, then you can support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £2 a month, you can help us make more stimulating podcasts like these, which you can listen to on the go without eating into your reading time. You'll be helping us to pay producers, reporters, and presenters, and give them shelter from the wasteland imposed by perfidious digital media. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofonievich, and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>